It's a great honor, a really great honor to have been asked to give uh, the Herman Bondi lecture for this year. Uh, it helps me to celebrate the achievements of a great humanist thinker and a great scientist. And it's also particularly appropriate that uh, Herman Bondi's name is recorded here because science and humanism really are two sides of the same coin. I need to issue a health warning first about what you're going to hear. Uh, it's two facts are important. One is that I'm a philosopher. This is an important piece of information for you because it means that I use no visual aids that were not familiar to Plato. <laughs> so it's just going to be me talking for about 40 minutes and then plenty of time for discussion, not just questions but abuse. Uh, objections and anything, anything you like. I always make it a point of honor to speak with my back to the wall, which I'm doing, and very near an exit, so that <laughs> if things get sticky, I shall just leg it out the door. So, uh, Secondly, I should explain that I see the business of philosophy as aligned with that of science in another way. Karl Marx said... The purpose of philosophy is not simply to understand the world, but to change it. And I would only add to that, not simply to understand the world, but to change it for the better. I hope that goes without saying. And that is why my latest book is called How to Be Good. It's, a, it, it's a, an instruction manual. You'll find everything you need to know. Um, I, I gave it that title rather in the hope that... Um, it would be mistaken for a self-help volume and would, would, would sell in millions, but it doesn't seem to be doing that. But it does have both a naked man and a naked woman on the cover, which is uh, very important for egalitarian purposes. Herman Bondi has said, and I quote, I think we all belong together and that in the interests of cooperation, we should put our religion or philosophical convictions on the back burner. We must try to do our best and not look for a firm foundation where there isn't one, end quote. Now, I agree wholeheartedly with those thoughts, but I have to say that as a philosopher, I'm a bit nervous of the idea that I should put philosophical convictions on the back burner. But, of course, we philosophers, hopefully, only have convictions that are based on the most convincing combination of evidence and argument. Convictions are considerations that ought to convince us, not simply ideas that we happen to favor or chime well with our prejudices. When I was uh, a teenager, I went on a, you used to be able to do this in those days, the $99 for 99-day Greyhound bus trip round the United States. And in one hop, I took the trip from San Francisco to Chicago. And we passed um, territory that I didn't quite recognize for what it was on the way. And we drove up to a little town. And on the outside of this little town, there was going to be a rest stop, which was very welcome. I think we'd been driving for about four hours. And on the edge of town was a white clapperboard church, which was entirely dwarfed by a huge neon sign. And the sign read, 
big Zion church. God said it. We believe it. That settles it. <laughs> and I've never forgotten those wise words that I saw when I was 17 years old in the middle of nowhere in the United States. But I would gloss Bondi's thoughts with the caution that we should not be over hasty to deny the existence of a firm foundation where there is one. And again, my book, um, I just waved at you, argues that goodness does in fact have firm and generally agreed foundations, but that's not going to be the topic of my talk this evening. But I will take the book's title as my point of departure. How to be good is the preeminent question for ethics, although one that philosophers and ethicists seldom address head on. It was the question Plato posed in a slightly different form in The Republic when he said, and I quote, we are discussing no trivial subject, but how a man should live. Marcus Aurelius thought he knew the answer when he talked in his meditations of the obligation of a king, a ruler, a government, if you like. He said concisely, perhaps predicting Herman Bondi's thought, a king's lot to do good and be damned. I think a very good motto. Edward Gibbon famously remarked, if a man were called to fix the period in history, in the history of the world, during which the human race was most happy and most prosperous, he would without hesitation name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. Now Marcus Aurelius, the father of Commodus, ruled for the last 19 years of this period, so perhaps he did know a bit about what uh, the good life requires, although of course he ignored, like everybody, almost everybody since, how small a proportion of the global population actually lived that good life. Recently, philosophers and scientists have tried to identify how to make the world better by using science and technology to make people more likely to do good rather than evil. Many of these have proposed ways of changing humankind by chemical or molecular means, and some of them by genetic means, so that they liter literally cannot do bad things or are much less likely to do bad things. In other words, by limiting or eradicating their freedom of choice, their freedom to choose evil rather than good. The same problem has also faced those interested in artificial intelligence, AI. If we create beings as smart or smarter than us, how can we limit their power deliberately to do evil, possibly even deliberately to destroy us? How can we ensure that they in fact act the best. And both the people who are interested in managing the scope and limits of artificial intelligence and those who are interested in, in improving organic creatures like us, many of them think that it is unproblematic having identified the good to make sure 
that people cannot choose, or artificial intelligences cannot choose anything else. Many people have thought that this problem can be solved, for example, by programming an artificial intelligence to obey some version of Isaac Asimov's so-called laws of robotics, particularly the first law, which you'll remember, says, quote, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Now, the problem, of course, is how would the robot know how to obey such, law, such a law? Ethical dilemmas often involve not choosing between good and bad, but choosing the lesser of evils. So if you program something not to do any evil at all, they will be absolutely paralyzed in very many common or garden situations. How would a human being who, for example, moral bioenhancement rendered unable to act violently in any way or aggressively in any way, how would they act towards other people um, or defend themselves against murderous attack? If their loved ones were threatened or they were threatened, how could they respond if they couldn't show aggression or violence? How would an artificial intelligence programmed to, uh, according to Asimov's laws, do likewise? Now, John Milton knew the answer. In Paradise Lost, Milton reports God as reminding humankind that if we want to be good, to be, in his words, just and right, then we need autonomy. And he says, he's speaking of how he had created mankind. He says, God says, I made him, mankind, just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. A phrase taken up by many subsequent thinkers, notably William Golding in his novel of the same name, Free Fall, and many others. This dilemma, felt apparently no less keenly by God than the rest of us, of how to combine the capacity, how to combine the capacity for good with the freedom to choose, how to ensure that people act well and still leave them their autonomy, their freedom, is now facing those trying to develop new ways of enhancing morality and those working on the new generation of smart machines. This is what Stephen Hawking meant when he told the BBC a couple of years ago, and I quote, the primitive forms of artificial intelligence we already have, have proved very useful. But I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. How could full artificial intelligence, which would enable the machine, which, who, possessed it to determine its own destiny as we humans do, be persuaded to choose modes of flourishing compatible with our modes of flourishing, given that its nature would be very different. Metal Mickey would possibly not, or certainly not, reproduce by sexual reproduction, possibly by mechanical construction. And it would be able to accelerate its evolution by such construction and by using uh, new and constantly new generations of co computer chips more effectively. Of course, we currently have these problems with respect to one another, but at least we have not yet 
shackled our capacity to cope with these problems by foreclosing some options for self-defense by eradicating the capacity for violence and aggression, which sometimes, unfortunately, we need. Let me offer you a truth. I like wandering around. Unfortunately, you can't do the same thing. <laughs> Let me offer you two truths about the future, which are as true about as any truths about the future can possibly be. These are they. In the future, there will be no more human beings and no more planet Earth. Those things are sure and certain. Why? Well, because in the future, we will either have wiped each other and ourselves out either by our own foolishness and wastefulness of human resources and uh, negligence of the planet, or we will have further evolved so that we are no longer human in any sense that we would recognize now. And the world will cease to exist. Why? Because we know that our sun has a finite lifespan. Eventually it will die, and long before the sun <coughs> dies, this world will have been rendered uninhabitable. Now, if we humans, or our successor species, or the artificial intelligences that we will have produced, undoubtedly, are to survive that time, we in the shorter term have to become more durable, more resilient, more capable of surviving in possibly an increasingly hostile <laughs> environment, and ultimately we have to get be become smart enough and technologically adroit enough to either find another world to live on, or indeed possibly smart enough to actually build another world to live on. Just as a little parenthesis here, I resume. Uh, this is part of the talk, this is a little interview. Um, suppose in our search for that other world, instead of us finding it, and possibly finding it inhabited by aliens, they prove to have the superior technology by turning up here before we turn up there. What could we say about ourselves to persuade them to treat us well, bearing in mind that they have the superior technology? They turn up after a vast interplanetary journey, lasting light years and light years. They, or the successor species of the uh, spacecraft, are, of course, like most of us travelers, tired, irritable, and hungry. And since, let us imagine, that these extraterrestrials are organic, like ourselves, what could we say about ourselves when they turn up, as I say, tired and hungry, to persuade them that the appropriate response from us would be to invite us to dinner rather than to have us for dinner? <laughs> What's, in other words, so special about us that makes moral relations between one another and between possible extraterrestrials or indeed 
the artificial intelligences that we might create, what makes it require that we treat one another, extraterrestrial artificial intelligences, with mutual respect? Now, that's where I tried to answer that question. I'm not going to do that tonight, but I raise it at this point, possibly to take a slight swipe side swipe at the humanists, because I know there are lots of humanists here, and I am a registered supporter, distinguished supporter, I think the word is, of the humanists, but I'm not a member. And the reason is that I, I, I think it is too speciesist a title. We need to realize that our concern for other sorts of creatures is necessarily more important than their species membership, just as it is more important than their race, their gender, their nationality, or any of the other suspects that we decide we shouldn't discriminate on the basis of. I'm now going to resume the talk. That wasn't the talk. Initial scientific predictions on the survival of our planet suggested that we might have 7.6 billion years to go before the Earth gives up on us and the sun dies. Comforting period of uh, rest and reflection, you might think. But recently, Stephen Hawking, whose original figure the 7.6 billion was, has revised his speculation downwards. And he said very recently, I don't think we will survive another 1,000 years without escaping beyond our fragile planet. Now, 1,000 years is still quite a healthily long time, but not quite as healthily long as 7.6 billion. To be sure, we need to make ourselves smarter, more resilient, and we may need, and this is why AI, the consideration of it is important, we may need to artificial intelligence to aid us to achieve that resilience and those capacities to survive into the far future when our world has become tired of us, even if we are not tired of it. To do so, we will have to change, but not in ways that risk our capacities to choose both how to live and the sorts of lives we wish to lead. In other words, without losing our freedom. So it's important that when we're considering things as possible candidates for moral enhancement, for making our morality better, we don't choose one that, ones that deprive us of the ability to choose. As Giuseppe de Lampedusa had Tancredi say in his novel The Leopard, se vogliamo che tutto rimanga come è, bisogna che tutto cambi. If we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. The news broke on the 6th of June, 2016, 6th of June this year, that a combination of stem cell therapy and gene editing technology may soon enable scientists to grow human organs in pigs in order to provide organs for transplantation. Now, many people were horrified at this prospect. But there is more to, di to digest in the proposal. Those organs that are produced in this way may actually be superior to human live donor organs. 
or indeed organs from cadavers. It's hardly surprising that the thought of crossing so-called species barriers should prompt such a, virulent com uh, such a virulent combination of distaste and panic as indeed this announcement provoked. And I want to examine this for the moment. Um, I spend, this isn't a digression, but just to a further bit of explanation, what uh, I try to do, and people like me try to do most of the time, is, um, is examine science and technology and think as hard as we can about whether we should welcome new innovations or whether we should not welcome them, whether we should fear them. Now, in the United States, there are vast numbers of bioethicists and abusive names that I'm sometimes called. And by and large, the job of bioethicists in the United States is more like the mother who said to her daughter, go and see what your little brother is doing and tell him to stop. And largely, bioethicists have been in the business, and philosophers who comment on this issue have been in the business of going and seeing what the scientists and the doctors are doing and telling them to stop. But I have to confess that when I go and see what they're doing, I usually think, this is fantastic, guys. This is fantastic. Don't, not only don't stop, move faster. And the reason I want them to move faster is for the reasons that I've just shared with you about our necessity to become more durable and to be able to create new words. And one of the things we need to guard against is the sort of human chauvinism which we so often exhibit. Not only about changing ourselves, we want humanity to stay as it is, but uh, certainly we don't want it mixed with uh, animal bits and pieces and so on. Of course we should not lose those properties that we value in creatures like ourselves. But the question is, should we improve upon them if we can? And the further important question is, should we try to restrict those properties to our own species? Should we share them with animals? Should we share them with machines? Of course we don't want to lose what we think of as our essential humanity, the good bit of humanism. If by that is meant those human characteristics that we value, but couldn't we not only have those characteristics, but also improve upon them? And if that's possible, why shouldn't we do it? We should not forget that the reality is, in terms of human and animal mixes, that humans and animals have been exchanging bits of their biological matter intentionally or by chance naturally or artificially, since time immemorial. Currently, we do it in drugs and in vaccines. Diet is another very good example, except for vegetarians, for whom objections are usually rooted in moral issues concerning animal welfare rather than in species mixing. There doesn't seem to be any preoccupation with the entry of animal genes, cells, tissue, muscle, and other bodily products into our daily metabolism. And we know that diet profoundly influences our bodies at both the genetic and epigenetic levels. 
So really, if one were consistent in maximizing the purity of human matter, the diet of choice for us would be cannibalism. <laughs> stick to humans. If you don't want animal mixes, stick to humans. Genetic hybrids have almost certainly always existed. A report by the United Kingdom Academy of Medical Sciences back in 2007, of which I was a co-author, noted, and I quote from our report, there are thousands of examples of transgenic animals, mostly mice, containing human DNA. But those who are horrified by this idea are by no means irrational, for there is a very problematic issue noted recently by the United States National Institutes of Health. They fear that the presence of human cells in the modified animals might humanize the animal brains to the extent that they possessed human sensibilities, human type cognition, rationality, and so on. Such capabilities would not just merit then moral and legal protections, comparable to the ones that hopefully we bestow on one another, they would demand them. In short, such animals, if they came to being, might, in becoming more human, would have rights analogous to human rights. This, of course, would change our entire conception of our place in the animal kingdom, our entire relationship with the natural world, in ways that the prospect of so-called full artificial intelligence may change our attitudes to machines and hopefully theirs to us. The best combination at the moment of informed scientific opinion does not support the idea that attempts to create human organs grown in animal hosts will result in any humanization of pig brains. But it's conceivable. We ha can't rule that out. But, and here is the crucial point, unless we continue to permit this research on growing human organs in animals, we'll never know the answer to that question. However controversial it may seem, it seems to me that we must pursue the current research to find out how and to what extent this fear of animals with humanized brains really is one we need to take seriously. And we can only do this, as with all science, by proceeding at least to the point where we have the requisite data. But we must also remember that there is a huge issue of human life and human welfare engaged by this sort of research. It's not just mad scientists having uh, a, an interesting idea, rather like the famous Ali G. Uh, story about his mate Dave who put the cat in the microwave to see what would happen. It was a piece of scientific research. Harvard's professor George Church, who has led research on chimeras as human-animal hybrids are known, suggests, and I quote very recently actually, in the last year at a meeting, on, um, on gene editing on CRISPR, which um, was convened in Washington last December and which was convened to do, try to decide whether there should be a moratorium on such research. And I was one of the speakers at that meeting and heard George say these things. He suggests that, and I quote, gene editing could ensure the organs are very clean, available on demand, and healthy. So they could be superior to human donor organs. 
if he's right, end quote, if he's right, the prize is enormous in terms of human health and happiness. In the United States, an average of 22 people die each day waiting for transplants that can't take place because of the shortage of donor organs. In the UK, is three. the figure is three per day. Globally, preventable deaths for want of donor organs and also for want of the facilities to carry out the surgery necessary run into hundreds of thousands. We need to remember that just as an old jurisprudential uh, expression, justice delayed is justice denied. Well, we need to remember that therapy delayed is therapy denied. Life-saving delayed is life-saving denied. Of course, pursuing this research will cost animal lives, and this shouldn't be taken lightly. But no society that permits the eating of meat can consistently object to animal research directed to human health and safety, nor to the growing of human organs in pigs. Growing pigs for their human, humanized organs cannot but be better than growing them to assure, ensure a supply of bacon sandwiches. It is a supreme irony that animal rights defenders concentrate their efforts on attacking science and not on attacking Sainsbury's. I just want to have a little sideswipe here at the, uh, the issue of animal research and the so-called three R's. No society, and that's all of us, all societies in the world at the moment, or almost all, which permits the rearing and sale of animals for meat can have any doubts about either the value or ethics of animals as research subjects. Advocates of the principle that Quote, there are good ethical, scientific, legal, and economic reasons for making sure that animals are used in minimum numbers and that this principle involves accepting the so-called three R's, the replacement, reduction, and refinement of the use of animals in research, can believe this. I am at a loss to know why so many scientists who are not vegetarians accept the necessity of applying the three R's to science and to medical research with animals, but not to Sainsbury's, Tesco's, and the rest. If George Church is right that gene editing could ensure the organs are very clean, available on demand, and healthy, so they could be superior to human donor organs, and this is demonstrated, then it would surely be more than ethical, it would be mandatory to increase the number of animals bred for science and therapy rather than try to reduce them. And supermarkets do not recognize any obligation to limit sales of meat. They want to maximize their sales. And we, if you like, those of us who are interested in animal welfare connive in that. We know that we are all descended from apes, but perhaps we need to remind ourselves that this descent is seamless and means that our genetic constitution contains a mixture of genes, indeed of the genes of all creatures and all other species that are part of the origin of our own transient and probably transitional species. I want to remind you of a lovely story told by uh, Richard Dawkins. I, 
another very well-known humanist. I am sure some of you will know it. It, um, it occurs in his essay called Gaps in the Mind. Are people familiar with that essay? Well, I'm, I'll tell you, the, I'll spoil it for you by telling you the story. He asks us to imagine a contemporary human woman standing on the coast of Africa. This is the coast of Africa. There's the sea. There's Europe up there. She's, she's looking north. And in her right hand, she holds the hand of her daughter. Sorry, her mother. descended from chimpanzees, we're not, but both ourselves and chimpanzees are descended from a common ancestor in a seamless chain of creation. Each mother and daughter looking as much like a mother and daughter as mother and daughters do. I think it's a very interesting reminder that Dawkins uh, wants to issue in this story. Dawkins' story reminds us of our ape ancestry and, most importantly, of the seamless transition between apes and humans. And we need to bear in mind another lesson from evolution relating to Dawkins' parable and outlined in his essay. That lesson is that it is an accident of evolution that we humans are a species in the sense that we can breed only with one another and not with other species by sexual reproduction. In fact, of course, technology has changed all that. We, can't, we could now breed with animals with a little bit of magic from uh, various sources, a bit of electricity, uh, a bit of reprogramming of cells and so forth, but we won't go into all of that. The lesson is then that it is an accident of evolution that we can call ourselves a species, that the ape species with whom we did in the past mate have all died out. To this extent, our ability to define ourselves at all as a unique, special species, distinct from the other great apes, is an accident of history, not an immutable law. And indeed, it is a law that technology has render rendered, as I say, breakable 
at will. I'm going to stop in about three or four minutes so that we have plenty of time for, or some time for discussion. What matters then, it seems to me, is not being human or being entirely human. What matters is the existence of beings that have a nature that makes it worthwhile to be alive or to exist. Our humanity is both highly contingent and highly problematic. But it's also, right, we're right to say that it is highly valu valuable. It's just that other sorts of creatures may come to have that sort of value. It may be the humanized animals who have human cells that I've talked about. It may be artificial intelligences, and we may, if we're unlucky, encounter them in aliens that find us before we find them, thereby demonstrating their superior technology. The desire to better ourselves and make ourselves better is part of the curiosity and the need that drives science, one of the oldest and most valuable of the things that characterize persons, humans if you like, but I prefer the term persons because it is species neutral. The most urgent and worrying ethical problems surrounding the uses of new technology, including synthetic biology, are not the dangers of pursuing such research and the innovation that may result. The dangers have been constantly, have been consistently, the dangers that have been consistently underestimated, it seems to me, are the dangers of not pursuing research. Because, and I don't say this reluctantly, but uh, it is a, a great pity nonetheless, because a host of feeble and often incoherent objectors, objections and objectors have placed themselves in the path of science and in the path of a better future for humanity and have been given unjustified respect. In the book that uh, I recommend wholeheartedly to you, uh, I try to go through in, in great detail what those feeble objections are and why they don't stand up. I don't have time to do that now. Turning our back on these possibilities, perhaps on the possibilities of surviving into the far future, perhaps because in T.S. Eliot's words, we do not dare disturb the universe, it seems to me, must not be an option. We should be open to science. We should be open to innovation, both in the interests of the welfare of humans now existing and in the interests of the survival of sentient and self-conscious creatures like us into the far future, bearing in mind that we may be the only intelligent, self-conscious creatures in existence anywhere, even in a universe as vast as this. We may be, we may be all there is of people who can ask and answer not only the questions of science but the ethical and philosophical questions that go with them. So it seems to me that we have to be open to further evolution, an evolution that cannot wait for Darwinian evolution takes far too long. We have to give 
Darwinian evolution a hefty nudge, and we have to do that in our own interests of survival. I hope you agree with me, otherwise we're doomed, I tell you. Thank you very much. Um, my own view, for what it's worth, which may not be a lot, is that there is a vast consensus, actually, on what that means. And I, I, I talk about this in, in the book. That of course, there are disagreements at, at the edges, but there is a vast consensus as to what better means. Let me think of a way of bringing this point home. When my son goes out, and he's 28, <laughs> and independent, but when he, still living at home, like <laughs> many children, when he goes off in the morning, I always say, take care. I always say, take care. And he knows what I mean by that, and I know what I mean by that, and every parent says or thinks the same thing. Now, what does take care mean? It means that we know that there are lots of things that will be worse, for him if they happen, and lots of things that will be better for him if they happen. And we hope that he will avoid the bad ones and benefit from the good ones. And there is vast agreement about what those are. May I borrow the hand mic? Just because I, I think better when I move. A bit like uh, the Sundance Kid in Butch Cassidy, if you remember the scene who shoots better when he moves. Um, think of this. Suppose someone is admitted to the A&E department of Great Hospital, Adelaide's Hospital down the road, uh, unconscious and in a particular condition. It doesn't matter what the condition is, but the condition is remediable. The condition is changeable. But it has the procedures for changing it have to be done immediately. The patient can't be consulted. She's unconscious. He's unconscious. What? There are some things, many things, it seems to me, that the medical staff would be genuinely negligent, culpable, criminal even, if they did not do in those circumstances. And those things might be quite trivial. But we would have pretty universal agreement about what they are. Suppose it's me. I'm admitted on the stretcher, lying on the pillow beside my head. This is the last. Sorry, I'm right-handed, so I'll make it really easy. It's the last segment of the little finger of my left hand. If they sew it back immediately, I won't lose that segment. And my life will be great, despite that loss if it has to occur. But nonetheless, I'd rather have all my bits, and probably you would too. It's a very trivial thing, but it's one of those things that just might make my life worse. And certainly having it would be neutral. And they just go on thinking of any, 
anything. In other words, we know what can do, by and large, to human flourishing, to human welfare, to a good life. Of course, there are disagreements. Once you know, we have a very long list. I used to try and put exercise with students when I was giving different sort of talks. I would say, write down now the hundred things that make your life worth living in rank order of importance. <coughs> and then I would pause, and nobody would be doing it. And I was at that moment that I, 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 I completely lost confidence as a, as a university teacher. Nobody ever does anything that I recommend them to do. But what interested me about this exercise is not what they would put on the list. It would interest me if I put a prurient interest in the list. But is that they are the sorts of creatures for whom there are things that make life worth living and for whom there are things that would make it less worth living and in some extreme cases not living, not worth living at all. And there's a huge amount of agreement about that. So I do think we do know what's good for us and for creatures like that. Like that. The problem with, I'm sorry, this is a very long answer to your very interesting question. The problem with AI, of course, is because of their different nature, we might not know what that list was for an artificial intelligence. And they might not care about what it was for us. And that's where we begin um, to diverge. But by and large, I, I think there's a lot of agreement. I, you know, you can always, everybody will now uh, uh, mention Daesh or ISIS or, 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 or whatever. Um, but I think there's a lot of agreement. I'm confident in the general agreement about what conduces to human benefiting. We don't, we know less about animals, but of course we do know that they feel pain. Once we come to AIs, it's, it's very dark. And I don't know the answer to that. You want another, ah, oh, you've got another line. Grab me afterwards and tell me how inadequate that answer is. <laughs> and you'll be right. So, um, so if or rather when we as a species progress at a trajectory of planets evolve, we eventually switch to some species or the name. Um, at what point does a different species of human become feasible for all these things we know, or are we already at a level which is forever good enough? I'm not sure I understand the import of the question. Do you mean if we further evolve into various subspecies, um, would we face a dilemma as to which of those subspecies we might prey upon in the way that we prey upon animals? Is that your question? You're saying it's reasonable to, for example, use pigs for human organs, so at some point, Well, um, to answer that question, I, I have answered on a, in another book. In fact, in, in one of the books that's on, on the bio that you received, one book I wrote in 1985 called Value of Life, where I tried to outline what are the minimum conditions for the possession of the sorts of interests that are protected by 
human rights for example but they wouldn't be confining to humans but they are interests that arise from being a particular sort of creature and I'm trying to explain what those are and it seems to me that we, we don't we won't have a mechanism for thinking about how we should even relate to animals or other people unless we have a minimal conception of what that is. Now it isn't species membership because we know that most humans feel very differently about other members of the human species at different stages of life. Most people care less about zygotes than they care about adults. Most humans care less about the early embryo than the later embryo. Many people feel that those in a permanent vegetative state of no consciousness and no feelings of any sort um, have ceased to have any, any existence that requires protection except for the species for sentimental reasons. So we do have, we have already started to think about that and have for centuries actually in terms of other humans. We may make some very big mistakes about that and of course there are always mistakes. Um, but that's what we need, that's what's prepared. Now, I have my own account. Um, if you ever become, please try not to be exposed to that account. You may feel it is totally inadequate and give the wrong answers, but then that's fine. I'm not the evangelist. <coughs> I don't want converts. You can make your own account, but that's what you need. You need an account of what it is that creates rights and duties and obligations and entitlements in creatures, whether they be machine creatures or aliens or animals or whatever. And absent such a cat, it's all crickets, actually. Absent such a cat, it's all crickets. And I think we all, if we reflect upon what matters to us, we will see that we do have the makings of such an account. And again, I can give you a sort of glimpse as to what that might be. One of the questions I like answering, asking is this. Are there people on other planets? Well, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question, but many scientists are looking to see whether there are. But we do know what we're looking for. So let's start by thinking what we're not looking for. We're not looking for plants on other planets. We're not looking for animals on other planets. We're not looking necessarily for machines of particular sorts on other planets. We're looking for particular sorts of creatures. They will, we don't expect them to be humanoid. That would be too much or too little to expect or to ask. But they have to be have something that makes them into a person on the other planet, albeit a little green person with tentacles rather than arms, but still a person and not something of a different kind. And whatever the answer to that question is, whatever would convince us Whatever they looked like, whether they were organic or manufactured one another uh, in a big uh, assembly plant or however they did it, whatever they would be like that would convince us that we had discovered persons on other planets, intelligent life on other planets, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Can I direct myself? There's a, there's a very persistent man in the front row. I only met earlier today, but at least he's somebody I know.
but, but where do you draw the line? You know, if we, we use harvest organs from pigs, we, you know, we can do that. And my answer is always the same. I will draw a line wherever I find a good reason to draw one. But I don't draw lines just for the sake of line drawing. So the, the, the question, where would you draw the line, is a question that invites a reason for it being drawn in a particular place. I haven't offered you much of the account of what that reason would be, but I think I've offered you enough. Got to be some intelligence there. Got to be some capacity for self-consciousness. Can be very minimal. Certainly, Diane's, Diane's children are persons properly so called in my book, and so on. Um, but we need. The problem is we need to be careful. Our problem at the moment is not in finding a way of drawing a line between some creatures and other, and other forms of humans that are less than us. Our problem is we, we can't do justice to all the people. We're quite clear in entitled to our full care, attention, and protection. Why? Because there aren't enough organs to transfer. There aren't, um, there isn't enough money to fund the cancer drugs that many people need, and so on and so on. And lines nonetheless are being drawn. Um, so I want us to go all out not to have to draw those lines and, uh, and to think about um, ways of not drawing those lines that may involve drawing different lines in other places. But all of those will require a justification. But to give you the answer to that question would take too long. And I don't want to give half an answer because then I'll get a terribly large bag of hate mail tomorrow, which I'll probably get anyway.
companionship, friendship, and so on, sound to us, but they would be very different. Um, so different that they are difficult to imagine. But I'm, I'm not so pessimistic that we couldn't be convinced by an issue. We knew we could care. It was powerfully more intelligent than us that we might have no choice but to be convinced, but that it would give an account <coughs> of its aims and objectives, that what it sought and why it sought after that. But our problem is maybe a, um, a failure of imagination for a creature constructed so differently. And I don't know whether we would be able to bridge that. Um, Martin Rees said some years ago,
out there that we should encourage science and technology that makes it better for human beings. Isn't it also a responsibility to argue uh, or to think about whom does it make it better for? So my problem with the talk was that it was sort of like assumption that all human value is the same. And we all know that it's not. Um, and my, again, my problem with, with insisting that science and technology uh, research should go forward is that what about the question of access? So are we then saying that we're, we're happy for it to go forward as long as it is available to certain people, and then it will eventually trickle down to others? Or is it also a responsibility to say, make it better, but make it better for everybody? Very good point. The only way I can ask that is to, is to say that we have, we've, the requirement is to level up, not to level down. But we, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that we shouldn't deliver a good to anyone unless and until we can deliver it to everyone. That has never been true in human history. What we have to do is to develop things that are beneficial for humankind and try to make them as widely available as possible. And where we cannot make them available to all, distribute them by some fair mechanism of distribution. And we have, I mean, you know, in, in the microcosm, we spoke scarcity of Donaldin precisely. It's like a thing. What we shouldn't do is say no more, no more transplants until everywhere can get a transplant. That's crazy. Uh, what we have to do is to try to make them more generally available. That's all to distribute them on some fair principle of priority. I mean, that's another dimension of my life, I've criticized very strongly the way NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in this country, does prioritize uh, access to medical treatment. I don't think it's choosing the right fair method of distribution, but at least our country is making an effort to find a fair method of distribution. I don't think NICE has chosen a very good one, I think there are better ones, but that's, that's detail. But what we shouldn't do is shut up shop until we can universally supply any benefit whatsoever. But we're left with that problem, yes. There will always be, um, almost always be, those um, loopholes. What we want to do is to have as few loopholes as possible and make sure that everybody at least has a fair chance of being among the winners. That's why we have huge social institutions devoted to protecting the vulnerable. We have you know, pretty good ones in this country, not, not, not sure of proof of We spend a lot of effort and money maintaining um, a very good, could be better, needs more money healthcare system. We have uh, a whole range of other institutions established only to deliver protection to citizens fire, police, ambulance, social services, um, medical research, all sorts of things. We're doing a lot. We as a society, not me, I do nothing except talk about it. But we're very cheap appears to doing the best. <coughs> but what we have to do is to constantly make sure that the pianist is doing his best. And maybe get a few more pianists.